Welcome to Ecclesia Hattiesburg this week. Uh, glad to have you with us. We um, are happy to announce that come March, we're going to be meeting in person again in March. So um, a couple more weeks here uh, online, streaming on Sunday nights. Uh, and then after that, we'll be meeting in person uh, at Parkway Heights Methodist Church in their sanctuary. We'll uh, be using that on Sunday nights, meeting at five o'clock. And so um, we hope that you will come when you feel safe uh, to come and join us in person. We will socially distance, have masks, all, all the stuff uh, necessary to make it a safe experience for everybody. Um, if you still don't feel comfortable meeting in person, we will be posting uh, the services and the talks uh, you know, the day after. We probably won't be live stream streaming them because honestly, that's it just didn't seem to go right very often. And it was a lot of work and everyone was always stressed out. And so we kind of want to focus on being in the room while we're there, and then we'll uh, we'll stream it uh, later on, probably that night or the next day. But uh, so starting in March, we'll be seeing each other again in person. Um, also, I uh, want to remind you that this February, we're doing something a little bit different. Um, we uh, have some, some members of our church, and based on some conversations we had from small groups, um, we're talking about how uh, the month of February, of course, is Black History Month, and and how they wanted to take this, uh, this time during February to kind of turn our attention and our lens towards um, the, uh, the witness uh, of the Black church uh, in America and, and the history of things. And so uh, that's what we're doing. Now, obviously, I'm wholly unqualified to speak uh, from the perspective of the Black church in America, uh, but we are going to be hearing from Sharon each week, who will give us a little story on uh, kind of a hero uh, of, of the uh, tradition. And then uh, each week, the sermon will we'll try to kind of keep an ear open to the witness 
uh, of the black church and, and the experience that they've had in America. And uh, yeah, so that's what we're doing again this week. And I'm excited about it. Um, we're going to bring Sharon on here just a minute before you, you hear me uh, blabber on. And uh, I'm excited because Sharon's going to be sharing a little bit about Fannie Lou Hamer this week. And uh, if you know Sharon, you know that she loves Fannie Lou Hamer. And if you never have, a, have had a chance to see her one woman show called Let It Shine uh, about Fannie Lou Hamer, um, next time that comes around, I highly recommend you going. It, uh, she does an outstanding job. It's such uh, an impressive and inspiring story. And uh, so uh, if you don't know much about Fannie Lou, hopefully you'll know a little more in a few minutes and you'll take some time to get to know a lot more uh, during the week. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and hand it over to Sharon, and then I'll see you uh, back here in a few minutes. Hi, everyone. Sharon here, um, and I'm excited to come and talk with you about our next Moment in Black History, which is the series that we're doing the entire month of February. The person that we're going to talk about today is my absolute favorite civil rights hero, Fannie Lou Hamer. Now, here's what I've discovered. I do not have an elevator speech when it comes to talking about Fannie Lou Hamer. I have talked about this lady for hours. Some of you know that, but I won't do that tonight. Tonight, I'll just focus on um, sharing a bit of her story in the hopes that you will take advantage of the knowledge and go seek information with her. Of course, I'd be happy to, to have some dialogue with her, with you about her. Anyway, um... So Fannie Lou Hamer, last week in the sermon, Mike talked about um, how Paul had this life-shifting moment and how everything was different in his life from that moment forward. Fannie Lou Hamer had a similar moment. It was August 1962. On a Sunday morning, she was attending church and the preacher announced that there was going to be a meeting on Monday night. Her friend Mary Tucker said she was going to go and Fannie Lou Hamer, she asked Fannie Lou Hamer to come along. So on Monday night, there was an organization, a civil rights organization called the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC. And they really just gathered people together to talk about their rights as American citizens to vote. Fannie Lou Hamer was in her 40s at that time, and she had no idea that she had the right to vote as an American citizen. That was information that she did not know. She knew that life was difficult for African-Americans. She knew that something just wasn't right, but she didn't know that there was a system in place that was supposed to be able to give you the power to decide who should be in leadership, who should be in government. Um, and so that was on a Monday. That Friday, she went to the courthouse to try and register. And of course, she was denied. When she got back home, the plantation owner where she worked, the plantation owner was angry because he had already heard about it. People were so upset that these 18 people tried to register to vote. By the time she got back home, everybody knew what she had already what she had tried to do. Anyway, she was fired from her job and forced to leave her home that night. And everything for her shifted from that moment forward. And I would say for Fannie Lou Hamer, she went on to... Of course, she was fired from her job. She had to leave her house. She was beaten. She was harassed. She was threatened constantly. But she also found her voice in the midst of all that. She became 
the voice of the oppressed in Mississippi in so many ways. Because, you know, with the civil rights movement, even now with the civil rights movement, growing up, I didn't know about Fannie Lou Hamer. I knew about Rosa Parks and I knew about Martin Luther King. But what was so unique about her then and even now is she was telling Mississippi stories. She was giving a firsthand account to the oppressive lifestyle that they lived on a daily basis, that they had to endure on a daily basis. That's what made her unique. That's what made her um, a person that people tuned into. So when I think about her life, I'll give you a quote from her, but when I think about her life, I think about all the obstacles that she faced. And in the midst of this learning about to, to vote, learning about her rights as American citizens, she fell in love with the ideals of this country. She read the Constitution, knew the 15th Amendment. She was in it. Like she was 100%. Oh, this is the system that was that should be designed to help all of us live a better life. And it literally shifted everything for her. So I would say with all the oppression she faced, one of her famous quotes is, um, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. But she never quit. I know that exhaustion, or if you have ever been a person that's been invested in politics or government or even in the lives of people that you care about, it is exhausting work, but she never quit. She never gave up. And the last thing I'll say about Fannie Lou Hamer is that she was a sharecropper and a wife and a mother. And before that, Friday, when her world shifted, I don't think she could have ever predicted that we'd still be talking about her today. I don't think she could have ever predicted that her life trajectory was going to be drastically different from that moment forward. So what I take from that is there are no small lives. There are no small jobs in the kingdom of God. God has a purpose and can use literally anyone. Um, and yeah, who, who would have ever thought that her life would have turned out to be that way? That, I mean, books and plays and musicals are being created about her right now, like genuinely right now. Um, and I'll close with a quote from Fannie Lou Hamer. She said, I know everyone is running around talking about 1976 as the bicentennial year of American progress. But black people and Indian people and other oppressed folks aren't really interested in celebrating something that wiped out our heritage. It's pretty hard to stand to pledge allegiance to something we never had. If there's gonna be any survival for this country, we have to make democracy a reality for all the people and not just a few. Nuggets of wisdom from Fannie Lou Hamer. I hope you'll dive more into her life. Um, yeah, we'll see you guys. We'll see you soon. Happy Black History Month. All right. Thanks so much, Sharon. Um, man, I just, uh, I love Fannie Lou Hamer's story. And uh, I love how uh, how passionate Sharon is about that story. Um, as, as, as she mentioned last week, we uh, we talked through the story of, of kind of Saul's conversion, right? And, and, and in that, we talked about um, the need for us to hear um, the whole story. The need for us to um, hear the other side of things, right? And working off this framework of Saul's own uh, conversion story, we talked about how Saul was both sincere 
and wrong, right? We see that Saul was devout and he was pious and he was sincere and much to his surprise, um, he was also, while being all those things, doing the devil's work, right? He sincerely believed that uh, killing and destroying the Christian church was something he was doing for God. Um, but what he was actually was just destroying, what he was actually destroying was what God was trying to build, right? So he was destroying the very thing he thought he was trying to protect. And it wasn't until he was robbed of his own senses, it wasn't until um, he hears the rest of the story from God directly that he sees clearly, right? He sees clearly that God uh, is squarely identified uh, with those who suffer and with those who are oppressed. And he hears the story from their side of things. And uh, when God addresses Saul, he asks, you know, why are you attacking me? Not them, me, right? There's no space given between what Paul is doing to those Christians and what Paul is doing to God himself. So God disturbs Saul's certainty and Saul's privilege and his comfort, right? And he, uh, and he changes his name. That's where Paul comes from. He goes from Saul to Paul. And immediately we see Paul's genuine sincerity because he now works just as hard the opposite direction, uh, just as hard for the church he was attacking, just as hard to build the church he was trying to tear down. We see his sincerity, but we see how destructive that sincerity was when he didn't have the whole story. And as he gives himself fully to this, uh, this new vision of what God wants to do in the world, um, we see the good news saves Paul by disrupting and humbling him, uh, by calling into question his assumptions about his own purity and his own righteousness and his own status. Right? And, and, and as we said last week, there's a, there's a lesson for us here. Uh, those of us who are a part of this American church tradition, uh, we need to kind of own our own history and hear the rest of the story. In, in lieu of what we're trying to think through in the month of February, uh, many in the American church history have been sincere, we can assume, but there's also exactly zero doubt that they are sincerely wrong. And the way the white church has treated our black brothers and sisters, uh, and, and the way we, uh, between slavery and Jim Crow and, and everything else that you know all about, um, we should and hopefully have had, I hope we've had our Paul moment, that moment we get knocked down where our own righteousness and our own certainty gets questioned, and we hear the rest of the story. And then we begin to work just as hard uh, against some of the very things we used to think uh, were good, and in fact were destructive, right? So we see God's good news, the whole story for someone like Saul, and for uh, many of us have had this kind of experience too, we see that it, um, it disturbs them, right? And it's said that the good news of God does two things simultaneously. For, for men like Saul, the gospel disturbs the comfortable, right? But for those who find themselves on the bottom of the pile, for those who are left out and oppressed, um, it, something quite beautiful happens. This very same good news that is so disturbing to Paul this very same gospel doesn't just disturb the comfortable, it comforts the disturbed, right? The truth that God locates God's self among the oppressed and among the disinherited is disturbing news or comforting news, depending on where you're at. And uh, that side of the story has been exceedingly rare in 
Christian history, at least in American Christian history. It's not a, a perspective we hear much, right? In fact, the, uh, the great uh, theologian and writer Howard Thurman, and if you've never read any Howard Thurman, do it this week. Um, and uh, in one of, in his kind of seminal book, uh, Jesus and the Disinherited, which again is, is top couple of books I've ever read. It's amazing. Um, he, he says this about our tendency to not hear that side of the story. He says, quote, I can count on the fingers of one hand, the number of times I have heard a sermon on the meaning of religion of Christianity to the man who stands with his back against the wall. It is urgent that my meaning be made crystal clear. The masses of men live with their backs constantly against the wall. They are poor, they are disinherited, they are dispossessed. What does our religion say to them? It's a good question, right? So we know what the good news says to someone like Saul, Paul, who is uh, respected and has power over other people and is using that power for what ends up to be a destructive thing. What does the good news say to the poor, to the oppressed, to the disinherited, to the dispossessed, right? Allowing the good news to tell you the rest of the story is not just for people like Paul. It is also for those who Paul attacked. And maybe for this week, we can tell, instead of calling that having a Paul moment or a Saul moment, we can call that side of the equation, the good news for those at the bottom uh, of the pyramid, so to speak, that we can call that side of it um, having a Mary moment instead of a Paul moment, right? And, and this week, I want to consider just for a few minutes, Mary, mother of Jesus, uh, in this light, which, which is kind of new for me. I'll be honest. I've never really thought a whole lot about Mary as kind of a voice for the dispossessed. Um, but uh, there's some, some great stuff written in a book I actually want to recommend to you. I got it right here. Uh, by uh, a guy named Esau Macaulay. Uh, and uh, this book is called Reading While Black. And it's about African-American biblical interpretation. And uh, it's been terrific. Highly recommend it. Um, and he, uh, I believe he actually calls Mary the patron saint of activists, right? And um, in the book, he kind of makes the case that she, I think, represents um, the hearing of the good news from that other side of the equation, right? So think about it as a, as a Jewish female teen, um, she was not exactly at the top of the social ladder, right? Um, very little of her own life would have been autonomous or self-determined. Um, she would have had a very low place, um, even among the, the oppressed people that she lived with. Uh, she would even have a low place among them. And she is certainly not who you would think about in regards to someone who is a candidate for um, changing the system and changing the world, right? But when she receives the good news of, of what God is going to do in the world, of what God is interested in doing in the world, it gives her this sense of joy and of purpose, right? A hopeful sense that um, even she, even little old Mary, not old, little Mary, gets to be a part of ushering in this new world, right? And in Luke chapter one, we hear this uh, poem or this song, the Magnificat, you've probably heard, heard it called uh, from Mary, where she kind of sings this beautiful testimony to the idea that God um, is not only with her and with her people, but will work specifically through her to bring this new world to bear. 
the good news that not only is she worthy of God's love, not only is God with her, even uh, in the lowly position she might have, but God is going to use her and work through her to change this world. It disturbs the comfortable and it comforts the disturbed, right? Here's what it says in Luke 1, 46 through 55, which is Mary's Magnificat. It says, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, now keep again, there's a Jewish teenage female who now knows she's pregnant out of wedlock, right? This is, um, there's a lot of reasons to not be happy here. Uh, and yet this is what Mary is singing. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and, his, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. But the good news sounds different for those who are at the bottom of the ladder. The good news sounds like good news. I mean, to someone like Paul, the good news sounds like bad news at first, right? It's disturbing. But here Mary is coming to the realization that while the world may say things work this way, and while the world may exalt these people and, and oppress these people, that the kingdom of God is this backwards, upside-down kind of kingdom, the last are first and the first are last. Imagine how beautiful this song sounds to the lowly, to the hungry, to the poor, and imagine how disturbing this is to the powerful, to the rich to those who benefit from the world as it is. My guess is you don't hear a lot of politicians quoting Mary's Magnificat. Right, to be honest, I don't ever remember wrestling with these kinds of verses growing up. In my um, very white church, <laughs> we, uh, we, I mean, we liked Mary. We didn't love her because, you know, Catholicism. But um, we had to make sure we didn't get confused. But uh, I mean, we liked Mary. But if we ever talked about scriptures like the Magnificat or um, Jesus' first sermon out of Luke 4, which I think was Fannie Lou Hamer's, one of her uh, go-to kind of scriptures, um, we always like so spiritualized it that it didn't have any real practical implications. Uh, we took all the actual justice out of them, right? And while those texts should be the kind of texts that knock, off, knock us off our horses and blind us and disturb us and, and get us to rethink our world, um, we didn't tend to have our Saul moments from those passages. But thankfully, that was not the case in the Black church tradition. Thankfully, they heard words like this, believed them, and claimed them, as we all should have, right? And, and the Black church, and specifically people like Fannie Lou Hamer, correctly had their merry moment. That moment when they realized that not only was God with them, but they were a participant, that God wanted to use them to set things right in this world. And it may not have been this specific verse, 
But you will find that many of the heroes, uh, as Sharon will talk about them, many of the heroes uh, that we'll look at had their own merry moment, right? That when it, uh, as it came from the side of uh, where they were oppressed or dispossessed, they heard the good news that God was with them, that God wanted good things for them, and that they could participate in bringing that about in this world. I mean, it's amazing to me, and you heard Sharon talk about it. It's amazing to me that uh, it wasn't until so much later in, in Fannie Lou Hamber's life that she came to realize that um, she could participate, right? She didn't know about voting until she went to that church service. She, she had never heard of it till what was it, 1962. And, and she says this in an interview that, that Sharon sent me. She said, quote, I'd never heard until 1962 that black people could register and vote. The interviewer says, never heard that in your life? And Hamer says, I'd never heard that. We hadn't heard anything about registering to vote because when you see this flat land in here, when the people would get out of the fields, if they had a radio, they'd be too tired to play it. So we didn't know what was going on in the rest of the state, much less in other places. Interviewer says, when you were a child at school, did the books not have anything about voting or democracy? And Hamer said, never. I'd never even heard that that was in the Constitution. I never heard anything about it. In fact, the first time I was aware that Mississippi had a constitution was when I tried to register to vote. And they gave me a section of the constitution of Mississippi to write, to copy, and then to give a reasonable interpretation of it. I didn't know that we had that right. And this is what I think tends to happen on, on it, when you are a dispossessed person, when your back's up against the wall, to quote Howard Thurman, is that your whole world becomes maybe small. And, 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 and this is all you know. This is all the people you know, know. And you can't imagine something bigger or better than this. Or that you get to participate in something bigger or better than this. And certainly Mary would have had, have had every right to kind of be in that same place. And then she had this moment this gift from God, where she becomes a part of the solution. She becomes a part of the story. Here was this good news that invited her to be a part of fixing what was broken in the world, to be a conduit through which God's love and justice become a reality. That is what Mary is talking about. That is what starts Fannie Lou Hamer on her path. And this is the witness, honestly, of the Black church uh, that the rest of us have largely ignored for most of our history. God is with the dispossessed of this world, and you are to be the one who participates with God in lifting them up and making this world a more just and loving place. God is not just interested in getting detached souls out of here and into heaven far away, which is basically all we talked about when I was a kid. God is interested in setting things right now, here and now. God is interested in justice and in, in, in love impartially distributed throughout the world now. And we are conduits of that mission. We are builders of that kingdom. I mean, you can, you can see when, she, when you learn a little more about Fannie Lou's life and, and, and you learn a little more about what she went through and her determination and her relentless drive, um, you, something possessed her. I don't know. I don't know how she didn't give up. But this good news, learning the rest of the story, changes you. 
Again, we are not just conduits. Uh, we are not just uh, victims of this world as it is. We are intended to be conduits of changing this world. And maybe you need to be knocked to the ground to figure that out. Or maybe, we need, maybe you need to be lifted from the dirt. But either way, this is the truth. This is the good news. And again, while I was taught that I could play a role in helping to get some souls to heaven, I was never taught that I was empowered to help set things right here and now. We were completely tone deaf uh, to that song, even though its notes riddle the pages of scripture. God cares about those who are hurting, those who are suffering, those who are oppressed in this world, and we are to be the solution. These hands, these bodies, these voices, these are the tools that God uh, is seeking to use to distribute justice and love and make them incarnate in this world. That's a story that turns Saul's life upside down. And it's the very same story that lifted up Mary and Fannie Lou and let them know that there was a better life that they could participate in. That they could be a part of fixing what was so obviously broken in the world, that they could be actors on the stage and not just audience members. That they were the tools in God's hands to build a better world. The good news, the rest of the story, the good news is that God is with those who are so often forgotten in our world. And we should stand in front of that story and let it be every bit as disturbing or as comforting as that might be for us. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we'll see you again on here next week and in person in March. Uh, peace be with you.